Part Three of The Open Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Katie Gibney, Arkansas, February 2008. The Open Door and the Portrait Stories of the Seen and the Unseen by Margaret O. Oliphant. The Open Door, Part Three. "'You've got an epidemic in your house, Colonel,' Simpson said to me next morning. "'What's the meaning of it all? "'Here's your butler raving about a voice. "'This will never do, you know. "'And so far as I can make out, you are in it, too.' "'Yes, I am in it, Doctor. "'I thought I had better speak to you. "'Of course you are treating Roland all right, "'but the boy is not raving. "'He is as sane as you or me. "'It's all true.' "'As sane as I or you? "'I never thought the boy insane.' He's got cerebral excitement, fever. I don't know what you've got. There's something very queer about the look of your eyes. Come, said I, you can't put us all to bed, you know. You had better listen and hear the symptoms in full. The doctor shrugged his shoulders, but he listened to me patiently. He did not believe a word of the story, that was clear, but he heard it all from beginning to end. My dear fellow, he said, the boy told me just the same. It's an epidemic. When one person falls a victim to this sort of thing, it's as safe as can be. There's always two or three. Then how do you account for it, I said. Oh, account for it. That's a different matter. There's no accounting for the freaks our brains are subject to. If it's delusion, if it's some trick of the echoes or the winds, some phonetic disturbance or other, come with me tonight and judge for yourself, I said. Upon this he laughed aloud, then said, that's not such a bad idea, but it would ruin me forever if it were known that John Simpson was ghost-hunting. There it is, said I. You dart down on us who are unlearned with your phonetic disturbances, but you daren't examine what the thing really is for fear of being laughed at. That's science. It's not science, it's common sense, said the doctor. The thing has delusion on the front of it. It is encouraging an unwholesome tendency even to examine. What good could come of it? Even if I am convinced, I shouldn't believe. I should have said so yesterday, and I don't want you to be convinced or to believe, said I. If you prove it to be a delusion, I shall be very much obliged to you for one. Come, somebody must go with me. You are cool, said the doctor. You've disabled this poor fellow of yours, and made him, on that point, a lunatic for life, and now you want to disable me. But for once I'll do it. To save appearances, if you'll give me a bed, I'll come over after my last rounds. It was agreed that I should meet him at the gate, and that we should visit the scene of last night's occurrences before we came to the house, so that nobody might be the wiser. It was scarcely possible to hope that the cause of Bagley's sudden illness should not somehow steal into the knowledge of the servants at least, and it was better that all should be done as quietly as possible. The day seemed to me a very long one. I had to spend a certain part of it with Roland, which was a terrible ordeal for me, for what could I say to the boy? The improvement continued, but he was still in a very precarious state, and the trembling vehemence with which he turned to me when his mother left the room filled me with alarm. "'Father,' he said quietly, "'Yes, my boy, I am giving my best attention to it. All is being done that I can do. I have not come to any conclusion, yet.' I am neglecting nothing you said, I cried, 
What I could not do was to give his active mind any encouragement to dwell upon the mystery. It was a hard predicament, for some satisfaction had to be given him. He looked at me very wistfully, with the great blue eyes which shone so large and brilliant out of his white and worn face. "'You must trust me,' I said. "'Yes, father. Father understands,' he said to himself, as if to soothe some inward doubt. I left him as soon as I could. He was about the most precious thing I had on earth, and his health my first thought. But yet somehow, in the excitement of this other subject, I put that aside, and preferred not to dwell upon Roland, which was the most curious part of it all. That night at eleven I met Simpson at the gate. He had come by train, and I let him in gently myself. I had been so much absorbed in the coming experiment that I passed the ruins in going to meet him, almost without thought, if you can understand that. I had my lantern, and he showed me a coil of taper which he had ready for use. "'There is nothing like light,' he said, in his scoffing tone. It was a very still night, scarcely a sound, but not so dark. We could keep the path without difficulty as we went along. As we approached the spot we could hear a low moaning, broken occasionally by a bitter cry. "'Perhaps that is your voice,' said the doctor. "'I thought it must be something of the kind. "'That's a poor brute caught in some of these infernal traps of yours. "'You'll find it among the bushes somewhere.' I said nothing. I felt no particular fear, but a triumphant satisfaction in what was to follow. I led him to the spot where Bagley and I had stood on the previous night. All was silent as a winter night could be, so silent that we heard far off the sound of the horses in the stables, the shutting of a window at the house. Simpson lighted his taper and went peering about, poking into all the corners. We looked like two conspirators lying in wait for some unfortunate traveller but not a sound broke the quiet. The moaning had stopped before we came up. A star or two shone over us in the sky, looking down as if surprised at our strange proceedings. Dr. Simpson did nothing but utter subdued laughs under his breath. I thought as much, he said. It is just the same with tables and all other kinds of ghostly apparatus. A skeptic's presence stops everything. When I am present, nothing ever comes off. How long do you think it will be necessary to stay here? Oh, I don't complain. Only when you are satisfied, I am quite. I will not deny that I was disappointed beyond measure by this result. It made me look like a credulous fool. It gave the doctor such a pull over me as nothing else could. I should point all his morals for years to come. And his materialism, his skepticism, would be increased beyond endurance. It seems, indeed, I said, that there is to be no manifestation he said laughing that is what all the mediums say no manifestations in consequence of the presence of an unbeliever his laugh sounded very uncomfortable to me in the silence and it was now near midnight but that laugh seemed the signal before it died away the moaning we had heard before was resumed it started from some distance off and came toward us nearer and nearer like someone walking along and moaning to himself there could be no idea now that it was a hare caught in a trap. The approach was slow, like that of a weak person, with little halts and pauses. We heard it coming along the grass straight toward the vacant doorway. Simpson had been a little startled by the first sound. He said hastily, "'That child has no business to be out so late.' But he felt, as well as I, that this was no child's voice. 
As it came nearer he grew silent, and, going to the doorway with his taper, stood looking out toward the sound. The taper, being unprotected, blew about in the night air, though there was scarcely any wind. I threw the light of my lantern steady and white across the same space. It was in a blaze of light in the midst of the blackness. A little icy thrill had gone over me at the first sound, but as it came close I confess that my only feeling was satisfaction. The scoffer could scoff no more. The light touched his own face and showed a very perplexed countenance. If he was afraid, he concealed it with great success, but he was perplexed. And then all that had happened on the previous night was enacted once more. It fell strangely upon me with a sense of repetition. Every cry, every sob, seemed the same as before. I listened almost without any emotion at all in my own person, thinking of its effect upon Simpson. He maintained a very bold front on the whole. All that coming and going of the voice was, if our ears could be trusted, exactly in front of the vacant, blank doorway, blazing full of light, which caught and shone in the glistening leaves of the great hollies at a little distance. Not a rabbit could have crossed the turf without being seen, but there was nothing. After a time, Simpson, with a certain caution and bodily reluctance, as it seemed to me, went out with his roll of taper into this space. His figure showed against the holly in full outline. Just at this moment the voice sank, as was its custom, and seemed to fling itself down at the door. Simpson recoiled violently, as if someone had come up against him, then turned and held his taper low, as if examining something. "'Do you see anybody?' I cried in a whisper, feeling the chill of nervous panic steal over me at this action. "'It's nothing but a confounded juniper-bush,' he said. This I knew very well to be nonsense, for the juniper-bush was on the other side. He went about after this round and round, poking his taper everywhere, then returned to me on the inner side of the wall. He scoffed no longer. His face was contracted and pale. "'How long does this go on?' he whispered to me, like a man who does not wish to interrupt someone who is speaking. I had become too much perturbed myself to remark whether the successions and changes of the voice were the same as last night. It suddenly went out in the air almost as he was speaking, with a soft reiterated sob dying away. If there had been anything to be seen, I should have said that the person was at that moment crouching on the ground close to the door. We walked home very silent afterward. It was only when we were in sight of the house that I said, "'What do you think of it?' "'I can't tell what to think of it,' he said quickly. He took, though he was a very temperate man, not the claret I was going to offer him, but some brandy from the tray, and swallowed it almost undiluted. "'Mind you, I don't believe a word of it,' he said, when he had lighted his candle. "'But I can't tell what to think,' he turned round to add, when he was halfway upstairs. All of this, however, did me no good with the solution of my problem— I was to help this weeping, sobbing thing, which was already to me as distinct a personality as anything I knew, or what should I say to Roland? It was on my heart that my boy would die if I could not find some way of helping this creature. You may be surprised that I should speak of it in this way. I did not know if it was man or woman, but I no more doubted that it was a soul in pain than I doubted my own being, and it was my business to soothe this pain— 
to deliver it if that was possible. Was ever such a task given to an anxious father, trembling for his only boy? I felt in my heart, fantastic as it may appear, that I must fulfill this somehow, or part with my child. And you may conceive that rather than do that I was ready to die. But even my dying would not have advanced me, unless by bringing me into the same world with that seeker at the door. Next morning Simpson was out before breakfast, and came in with evident signs of the damp grass on his boots, and a look of worry and weariness, which did not say much for the night he had passed. He improved a little after breakfast, and visited his two patients, for Bagley was still an invalid. I went out with him on his way to the train, to hear what he had to say about the boy. "'He is going on very well,' he said. "'There are no complications as yet. But mind you, that's not a boy to be trifled with, Mortimer. Not a word to him about last night. I had to tell him then of my last interview with Roland, and of the impossible demand he had made upon me, by which, though he tried to laugh, he was much discomposed, as I could see. "'We must just perjure ourselves all round,' he said, "'and swear you exercised it. But the man was too kind-hearted to be satisfied with that. "'It's frightfully serious for you, Mortimer. I can't laugh as I should like to. I wish I saw a way out of it, for your sake. By the way,' he added shortly, "'didn't you notice that juniper bush on the left-hand side? There was one on the right hand of the door.' I noticed you made that mistake last night. Mistake, he cried, with a curious low laugh, pulling up the collar of his coat as though he felt the cold. There's no juniper there this morning, left or right. Just go and see. As he stepped into the train a few minutes after, he looked back upon me and beckoned me for a parting word. I'm coming back tonight, he said. I don't think I had any feeling about this as I turned away from that common bustle of the railway, which made my private preoccupations feel so strangely out of date. There had been a distinct satisfaction in my mind before, that his skepticism had been so entirely defeated. But the more serious part of the matter pressed upon me now. I went straight from the railway to the manse, which stood on a little plateau on the side of the river, opposite to the woods of Brentwood. The minister was one of a class which is not so common in Scotland as it used to be, he was a man of good family, well-educated in the Scotch way, strong in philosophy, not so strong in Greek, strongest of all in experience, a man who had come across, in the course of his life, most people of note that had ever been in Scotland, and who was said to be very sound in doctrine, without infringing the toleration with which old men, who are good men, are generally endowed. He was old-fashioned, Perhaps he did not think so much about the troublous problems of theology as many of the young men, nor ask himself any hard questions about the confession of faith. But he understood human nature, which is perhaps better. He received me with a cordial welcome. "'Come away, Colonel Mortimer,' he said. "'I'm all the more glad to see you, that I feel it's a good sign for the boy. He's doing well? God be praised, and the Lord bless him and keep him.' He has many a poor body's prayers, and that can do nobody harm. He will need them all, Dr. Moncrief, I said, and your counsel too. And I told him the story, more than I had told Simpson. The old clergyman listened to me with many suppressed exclamations, and at the end the water stood in his eyes. That's just beautiful, he said. I do not mind to have heard anything like it. 
It's as fine as Burns when he wished deliverance to one that is prayed for in no kirk. Aye, aye, so he would have you console the poor lost spirit. God bless the boy. There's something more than common in that, Colonel Mortimer. And also the faith of him and his father. I would like to put that into a sermon. Then the old gentleman gave me an alarmed look and said, No, no, I was not meaning a sermon, but I must write it down for the children's record. I saw the thought that passed through his mind. Either he thought, or he feared I would think, of a funeral sermon. You may believe this did not make me more cheerful. I can scarcely say that Dr. Moncrief gave me any advice. How could anyone advise on such a subject? But he said, I think I'll come too. I'm an old man. I'm less liable to be frightened than those that are further off the world unseen. It behooves me to think of my own journey there. I've no cut-and-dry beliefs on the subject. I'll come too, and maybe at the moment the Lord will put into our heads what to do. This gave me a little comfort, more than Simpson had given me. To be clear about the cause of it was not my grand desire. It was another thing that was in my mind, my boy. As for the poor soul at the open door, I had no more doubt, as I have said, of its existence than I had of my own. It was no ghost to me. I knew the creature, and it was in trouble. That was my feeling about it, as it was Roland's. To hear it first was a great shock to my nerves, but not now. A man will get accustomed to anything. But to do something for it was the great problem. How was I to be serviceable to a being that was invisible, that was mortal no longer? Maybe at the moment the Lord will put it into our heads. This is very old-fashioned phraseology, and a week before, most likely, I should have smiled, though always with kindness, at Dr. Moncrief's credulity. But there was a great comfort, whether rational or otherwise I cannot say, in the mere sound of the words. The road to the station and the village lay through the glen, not by the ruins, but though the sunshine and the fresh air and the beauty of the trees and the sound of the water were all very soothing to the spirits, my mind was so full of my own subject that I could not refrain from turning to the right hand as I got to the top of the glen, and going straight to the place which I may call the scene of all my thoughts. It was lying full in the sunshine, like all the rest of the world. The ruined gable looked due east, and in the present aspect of the sun the light streamed down through the doorway as our lantern had done, throwing a flood of light upon the damp grass beyond. There was a strange suggestion in the open door, so futile, a kind of emblem of vanity, all free around, so that you could go where you pleased, and yet that semblance of an enclosure, that way of entrance, unnecessary, leading to nothing. And why any creature should pray and weep to get in, to nothing, or be kept out, by nothing, you could not dwell upon it, or it made your brain go round. I remembered, however, what Simpson said about the juniper, with a little smile on my own mind as to the inaccuracy of recollection which even a scientific man will be guilty of. I could see now the light of my lantern gleaming upon the wet glistening surface of the spiky leaves at the right hand, and he ready to go to the stake for it that it was the left. I went round to make sure, and then I saw what he had said. Right or left, there was no juniper at all. I was confounded by this, though it was entirely a matter of detail nothing at all. A bush of brambles waving, the grass growing up to the very walls. But after all, though it gave me a shock for a moment, what did that matter? 
There were marks as if a number of footsteps had been up and down in front of the door, but these might have been our steps, and all was bright and peaceful and still. I poked about the other ruin, the larger ruins of the old house, for some time, as I had done before. There were marks upon the grass here and there. I could not call them footsteps, all about, but that told for nothing one way or another. I had examined the ruined rooms closely the first day. They were half filled up with soil and debris, withered brackens and bramble, no refuge for anyone there. It vexed me that Jarvis should see me coming from that spot when he came up to me for his orders. I don't know whether my nocturnal expedition had got wind among the servants, but there was a significant look in his face. Something in it I felt was like my own sensation when Simpson, in the midst of his skepticism, was struck dumb. Jarvis felt satisfied that his veracity had been put beyond question. I never spoke to a servant of mine in such a peremptory tone before. I sent him away with a flea in his lug, as the man described it afterward. Interference of any kind was intolerable to me at such a moment. But what was strangest of all was that I could not face Roland. I did not go up to his room, as I would have naturally done, at once. This the girls could not understand. They saw there was some mystery in it. "'Mother has gone to lie down,' Agatha said. "'He has had such a good night.' "'But he wants you so, Papa,' cried little Jeanie, always with her two arms embracing mine in a pretty way she had. I was obliged to go at last, but what could I say? I could only kiss him and tell him to keep still, that I was doing all I could. There is something mystical about the patience of a child. "'It will come all right, won't it, father?' he said. "'God grant it may. I hope so, Roland. Oh, yes, it will come all right.' Perhaps he understood that in the midst of my anxiety I could not stay with him, as I should have done otherwise. But the girls were more surprised than it is possible to describe. They looked at me with wondering eyes. "'If I were ill, Papa, and you only stayed with me a moment, I should break my heart,' said Agatha. But the boy had a sympathetic feeling. He knew that of my own will I would not have done it. I shut myself up in the library, where I could not rest, but kept pacing up and down like a caged beast. What could I do? And if I could do nothing, what would become of my boy? These were the questions that, without ceasing, pursued each other through my mind. Simpson came out to dinner, and when the house was all still, and most of the servants in bed, we went out and met Dr. Moncrief, as we had appointed, at the head of the glen. Simpson, for his part, was disposed to scoff at the doctor. "'If there are to be any spells, you know, I'll cut the whole concern,' he said. I did not make him any reply. I had not invited him. He could go or come as he pleased. He was very talkative, far more so than suited my humor, as we went on. "'One thing is certain, you know. There must be some human agency,' he said. "'It is all bosh about apparitions. I never have investigated the laws of sound to any great extent,' and there's a great deal in ventriloquism that we don't know much about. If it's the same to you, I said, I wish you'd keep all that to yourself, Simpson. It doesn't suit my state of mind. Oh, I hope I know how to respect idiosyncrasy, he said. The very tone of his voice irritated me beyond measure. These scientific fellows, I wonder people put up with them as they do, when you have no mind for their cold-blooded confidence. Dr. Moncrief met us about eleven o'clock, the same time as on the previous night. He was a large man, 
with a venerable countenance and white hair, old but in full vigor, and thinking less of a cold night walk than many a younger man. He had his lantern, as I had. We were fully provided with means of lighting the place, and we were all of us resolute men. We had a rapid consultation as we went up, and the result was that we divided to different posts. Dr. Moncrief remained inside the wall, if you can call that inside, where there was no wall but one. Simpson placed himself on the side next the ruins, so as to intercept any communication with the old house, which was what his mind was fixed upon. I was posted on the other side. To say that nothing could come near without being seen was self-evident. It had been so also on the previous night. Now, with our three lights in the midst of the darkness, the whole place seemed illuminated. Dr. Moncrief's lantern, which was a large one, without any means of shutting up, an old-fashioned lantern with a pierced and ornamental top, shone steadily, the rays shooting out of it upward into the gloom. He placed it on the grass, where the middle of the room, if this had been a room, would have been. The usual effect of the light streaming out of the doorway was prevented by the illumination which Simpson and I on either side supplied. With these differences, everything seemed as on the previous night. And what occurred was exactly the same, with the same air of repetition, point for point, as I had formerly remarked. I declared that it seemed to me as if I were pushed against, put aside, by the owner of the voice as he paced up and down in his trouble, though these are perfectly futile words, seeing that the stream of light from my lantern, and that from Simpson's taper, lay broad and clear, without a shadow, without the smallest break, across the entire breadth of the grass. I had ceased even to be alarmed for my part. My heart was rent with pity and trouble, pity for the poor suffering human creature that moaned and pleaded so, and trouble for myself and my boy. God, if I could not find any help, and what help could I find? Roland would die. We were all perfectly still till the first outburst was exhausted, as I knew by experience it would be. Dr. Moncrief, to whom it was new, was quite motionless on the other side of the wall, as we were in our places. My heart had remained almost at its usual beating during the voice. I was used to it. It did not rouse all my pulses as it did at first. But just as it threw itself sobbing at the door—I cannot use other words— there suddenly came something which sent the blood coursing through my veins and my heart into my mouth. It was a voice inside the wall, the minister's well-known voice. I would have been prepared for it in any kind of adjuration, but I was not prepared for what I heard. It came out with a sort of stammering, as if too much moved for utterance. "'Willie, Willie, oh, God preserve us, is it you?' These simple words had an effect upon me that the voice of the invisible creature had ceased to have. I thought the old man, whom I had brought into this danger, had gone mad with terror. I made a dash round to the other side of the wall, half crazed myself with the thought. He was standing where I had left him, his shadow thrown vague and large upon the grass by the lantern which stood at his feet. I lifted my own light to see his face as I rushed forward. He was very pale his eyes wet and glistening, his mouth quivering with parted lips. He neither saw nor heard me. We that had gone through this experience before had crouched toward each other to get a little strength to bear it. But he was not even aware that I was there. His whole being seemed absorbed in anxiety and tenderness. 
he held out his hands, which trembled, but it seemed to me with eagerness, not fear. He went on speaking all the time. Willie, if it is you, and it's you, if it is not a delusion of Satan, Willie, lad, why come ye here frighting them that know you not? Why came ye not to me? He seemed to wait for an answer. When his voice ceased, his countenance, every line moving, continued to speak. Simpson gave me another terrible shock, stealing into the open doorway with his light, as much awe-stricken, as wildly curious as I. But the minister resumed, without seeing Simpson, speaking to someone else. His voice took a tone of expostulation. "'Is this right to come here? Your mother's gone with your name on her lips. Do you think she would ever close her door on her own lad? Do you think the Lord will close the door, you faint-hearted creature?' "'No, I forbid ye, I forbid ye,' cried the old man. The sobbing voice had begun to resume its cries. He made a step forward, calling out the last words in a voice of command. "'I forbid ye, cry out no more to man. Go home, ye wandering spirit, go home. Do ye hear me? Me that christened ye, that have struggled with ye, that have wrestled for ye with the Lord.' Here the loud tones of his voice sank into tenderness. "'And her, too, poor woman, poor woman, her you are calling upon. "'She's not here. You'll find her with the Lord. "'Go there and seek her, not here. "'Do you hear me, lad? Go after her there. "'He'll let you in, though it's late. "'Man, take heart. If you will lie and sob and greet, "'let it be at heaven's gate, and not your poor mother's ruined door.' "'He stopped to get his breath, and the voice had stopped, "'not as it had done before, when its time was exhausted.' and all its repetitions said, but with a sobbing catch in the breath as if overruled. Then the minister spoke again. "'Are you hearing me, Will? Oh, laddie, you've liked the beggarly elements all your days. Be done with them now. Go home to the father, the father. Are you hearing me?' Here the old man sank down upon his knees, his face raised upwards, his hands held with a tremble in them, all white in the light in the midst of the darkness." I resisted as long as I could, though I cannot tell why. Then I, too, dropped upon my knees. Simpson all the time stood in the doorway, with an expression in his face such as words could not tell, his underlip dropped, his eyes wild, staring. It seemed to be, to him, that image of blank ignorance and wonder that we were praying. All the time the voice, with a low arrested sobbing, lay just where he was standing, as I thought. Lord, the minister said, Lord, take him into thy everlasting habitations. The mother he cries to is with thee. Who can open to him but thee? Lord, when is it too late for thee? Or what is too hard for thee? Lord, let that woman there draw him in our. Let her draw him in our. I sprang forward to catch something in my arms that flung itself wildly within the door. The illusion was so strong that I never paused till I felt my forehead graze against the wall and my hands clutch the ground, for there was nobody there to save from falling, as in my foolishness I thought. Simpson held out his hand to me to help me up. He was trembling and cold, his lower lip hanging, his speech almost inarticulate. "'It's gone,' he said, stammering. "'It's gone.' We leaned upon each other for a moment, trembling so much, both of us, that the whole scene trembled as if it were going to dissolve and disappear, 
and yet as long as I live I will never forget it, the shining of the strange lights, the blackness all round, the kneeling figure with all the whiteness of the light concentrated on its white venerable head and uplifted hands. A strange solemn stillness seemed to close all round us. By intervals a single syllable, Lord, Lord, came from the old minister's lips. He saw none of us, nor thought of us. I never knew how long we stood, like sentinels guarding him at his prayers, holding our lights in a confused, dazed way, not knowing what we did. But at last he rose from his knees, and standing up at his full height, raised his arms, as the Scotch manner is at the end of a religious service, and solemnly gave the apostolical benediction. To what? To the silent earth, the dark woods, the wide-breathing atmosphere? For we were but spectators gasping an amen. It seemed to me that it must be the middle of the night, as we all walked back. It was in reality very late. Dr. Moncrief put his arm into mine. He walked slowly, with an air of exhaustion. It was as if we were coming from a deathbed. Something hushed and solemnized the very air. There was that sense of relief in it which there always is at the end of a death struggle. And nature, persistent, never daunted, came back in all of us as we returned into the ways of life. We said nothing to each other, indeed, for a time, but when we got clear of the trees and reached the opening near the house, where we could see the sky, Dr. Moncrief himself was the first to speak. I must be going, he said. It's very late, I'm afraid. I will go down the glen, as I came. But not alone. I am going with you, doctor. Well, I will not oppose it. I am an old man, and agitation wearies more than work. Yes, I'll be thankful of your arm. Tonight, Colonel, you've done me more good turns than one. I pressed his hand on my arm, not feeling able to speak. But Simpson, who turned with us, and who had gone along all this time with his taper flaring, in entire unconsciousness, came to himself, apparently at the sound of our voices, and put out that wild little torch with a quick movement, as if of shame. "'Let me carry your lantern,' he said. "'It is heavy.' He recovered with a spring, and in a moment, from the awe-stricken spectator he had been, became himself, skeptical and cynical. "'I should like to ask you a question,' he said. Do you believe in purgatory, doctor? It's not in the tenets of the church, so far as I know. Sir, said Dr. Moncrief, an old man like me is sometimes not very sure what he believes. There is just one thing I am certain of, and that is the loving-kindness of God. But I thought that was in this life. I am no theologian. Sir, said the old man again, with a tremor in him which I could feel going over all his frame. If I saw a friend of mine within the gates of hell, I would not despair but his father would take him by the hand still, if he cried like you. I allow it is very strange, very strange, I cannot see through it, that there must be human agency, I feel sure. Doctor, what made you decide upon the person and the name? The minister put out his hand with the impatience which a man might show if he were asked how he recognized his brother. Tuts, he said, in familiar speech, then more solemnly. How should I not recognize a person that I know better, far better, than I know you? Then you saw the man? Dr. Moncrief made no reply. He moved his hand again with a little impatient movement, and walked on, leaning heavily on my arm. 
and we went on for a long time without another word, threading the dark paths, which were steep and slippery with the damp of the winter. The air was very still, not more than enough to make a faint sighing in the branches, which mingled with the sound of the water to which we were descending. When we spoke again, it was about indifferent matters, about the height of the river and the recent rains. We parted with the minister at his own door, where his old housekeeper appeared in great perturbation, waiting for him. "'Eh, me, minister! The young gentleman will be worse?' she cried. "'Far from that. Better. God bless him,' Dr. Moncrief said. I think if Simpson had begun again to me with his questions, I should have pitched him over the rocks as we returned up the glen. But he was silent, by a good inspiration, and the sky was clearer than it had been for many nights, shining high over the trees, with here and there a star faintly gleaming through the wilderness of dark and bare branches. The air, as I have said, was very soft in them, with a subdued and peaceful cadence. It was real, like every natural sound, and came to us like a hush of peace and relief. I thought there was a sound in it as of the breath of a sleeper, and it seemed clear to me that Roland must be sleeping, satisfied and calm. We went up to his room when we went in. There we found the complete hush of rest. My wife looked up out of a doze and gave me a smile. I think he is a great deal better, but you are very late, she said in a whisper, shading the light with her hand that the doctor might see his patient. The boy had got back something like his own color. He woke as we stood all round his bed. His eyes had the happy, half-awakened look of childhood, glad to shut again, yet pleased with the interruption and glimmer of the light. I stooped over him and kissed his forehead, which was moist and cool. "'All is well, Roland,' I said. He looked up at me with a glance of pleasure, and took my hand, and laid his cheek upon it, and so went to sleep." For some nights after, I watched among the ruins, spending all the dark hours up to midnight patrolling about the bit of wall which was associated with so many emotions. But I heard nothing, and saw nothing beyond the quiet course of nature. Nor, so far as I am aware, has anything been heard again. Dr. Moncrief gave me the history of the youth, whom he never hesitated to name. I did not ask, as Simpson did, how he recognized him. He had been a prodigal, weak, foolish, easily imposed upon, and led away, as people say. All that we had heard had passed actually in life, the doctor said. The young man had come home thus a day or two after his mother died, who was no more than the housekeeper in the old house, and distracted with the news, had thrown himself down at the door and called upon her to let him in. The old man could scarcely speak of it for tears. To me it seemed as if, heaven help us, how little do we know about anything. A scene like that might impress itself somehow upon the hidden heart of nature. I do not pretend to know how, but the repetition had struck me at the time as, in its terrible strangeness and incomprehensibility, almost mechanical, as if the unseen actor could not exceed or vary, but was bound to reenact the whole. One thing that struck me, however, greatly, was the likeness between the old minister and my boy in the manner of regarding these strange phenomena. Dr. Moncrief was not terrified, as I had been myself, and all the rest of us. It was no ghost, as I fear we all vulgarly considered it, to him, but a poor creature whom he knew under these conditions, just as he had known him in the flesh, having no doubt of his identity. And to Roland it was the same. 
This spirit in pain, if it was a spirit, this voice out of the unseen, was a poor fellow creature in misery, to be succored and helped out of his trouble, to my boy. He spoke to me quite frankly about it when he got better. I knew father would find out some way, he said, and this was when he was strong and well, and all idea that he would turn hysterical or become a seer of visions had happily passed away. I must add one curious fact, which does not seem to me to have any relation to the above, but which Simpson made great use of, as the human agency which he was determined to find somehow. We had examined the ruins very closely at the time of these occurrences, but afterwards, when all was over, as we went casually about them one Sunday afternoon in the idleness of that unemployed day, Simpson with his stick penetrated an old window which had been entirely blocked up with fallen soil. He jumped down into it in great excitement and called me to follow. There we found a little hole, for it was more a hole than a room, entirely hidden under the ivy and ruins, in which there was a quantity of straw laid in a corner, as if someone had made a bed there, and some remains of crusts about the floor. Someone had lodged there, and not very long before, he made out, and that this unknown being was the author of all the mysterious sounds we heard he is convinced. I told you it was human agency, he said triumphantly. He forgets, I suppose, how he and I stood with our lights, seeing nothing, while the space between us was audibly traversed by something that could speak and sob and suffer. There is no argument with men of this kind. He is ready to get up a laugh against me on this slender ground. I was puzzled myself. I could not make it out, but I always felt convinced human agency was at the bottom of it. And here it is, and a clever fellow he must have been, the doctor says. Bagley left my service as soon as he got well. He assured me it was no want of respect, but he could not stand them kind of things. And the man was so shaken and ghastly that I was glad to give him a present and let him go. For my own part, I made a point of staying out the time, two years, for which I had taken Brentwood, but I did not renew my tenancy. By that time we had settled and found for ourselves a pleasant home of our own. I must add that when the doctor defies me, I can always bring back gravity to his countenance and a pause in his railing when I remind him of the juniper bush. To me that was a matter of little importance. I could believe I was mistaken. I did not care about it one way or another. But on his mind the effect was different. The miserable voice, the spirit in pain, he could think of as the result of ventriloquism or reverberation or anything you please, an elaborate prolonged hoax executed somehow by the tramp that had found a lodging in the old tower. But the juniper bush staggered him. Things have effects so different on the minds of different men. End of part three of three of the open door.